As I read from God's Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 11, I'm going to preach from verses 7 through 14, but so that we may remain in its proper context. I'm just going to read from verse 1 and then focus on verses 17 th- or 7 through 14. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 11. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually or which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell upon the earth. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, things, O Lord, that are difficult for us to understand, would that you by your spirit illumine us. Grant to us wisdom and understanding according to your word that we might be those who not only hear the word but perceive it and live in light of it and be transformed by it. Make us a people who long for your appearing, who will labor faithfully until that day knowing that you through the means of word, prayer, sacrament by your faithful servants are establishing a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do this this morning. Move the needle forward as it relates to the coming of your kingdom. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.
So last week was pretty robust in terms of the imagery uh, and what we are learning. It boils really down to this, that God uses the proclamation of his prophets to foretell of the coming destruction of those who do not seek refuge in Christ, but in the religions of men. What had come to be in Jerusalem and in the temple, even in the day of Jesus, was not religion that exalted God or sought his purposes, but a false religion. A religion built not upon revelation, but upon man's invention. And that invention, especially for the Jewish people, continues to this day. And though there are some correlates between Judaism and Christianity, such that it is often called Judeo-Christian values, there is no peace for those who do not confess Christ and bow their knees to him and those who do not. In fact, what Christ is doing and illustrating in these opening verses of chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, is showing that he is measuring. He knows who is in and out. Who are the sheep and who are the goats? And it has changed. Jerusalem, the once glorious city of God, is now compared in chapter 11 to Sodom and to Egypt. They have become an abomination. They have become apostate. Though having been given the revelation of God's messianic rule, they denied him. John chapter 1. Though the light came into the world, the darkness wanted nothing to do with it. They hid from the light. And this darkness hiding from the light is not a a kind of sympathetic, hey, live and let live kind of running. It is an open hostility. So that we can say as it relates to the two kingdoms, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan one upon which Christ reigns and sits as king, and Satan, the prince of darkness, who rules and reigns, there is no peace to be made. The peace that Christ brought is between sinners and the Father through his precious blood. But we live in an age now among many secular evangelicals who say, let's just be careful. But for how long? And when I say careful here, what we find is that there are many Christians today who are so interested in guarding their reputation, thinking that it is Christ's reputation, that they never go to war with the spirit of the age. They are unwilling to fight. They are unwilling to proclaim. And ultimately, they are unwilling to proclaim because they are afraid and because they love the world. May we not be such a people. May we be like these witnesses here. That is who we will look at in continued fashion this morning. Even as they have already preached, we see what happens once their testimony is over. Two points that I want to make this morning. The beast and the witnesses. The beast and the witnesses. And then second, resurrection as testimony. Resurrection as testimony. Now, let's look at this first point, the beast and the witnesses. All right, we get to the beast. Maybe you're all wondering, who's the beast? And I am telling you, 
It is clear, if you look throughout Scripture, there are two great enemies of the church as it relates to the two great sort of avenues or areas of attack and conflict against the people of God. There are those who wield political power against the church, and there are those who wage theological power against the church. The beast represents those who wield political power in order to silence the church. Stalin, right? The whole nation of Canada right now. Any and all who say, you can keep porn shops open, but you can't go to church and sing to the risen Lord. This is the world in which we live now. Now that may have gone, ooh, don't say that. You need to know who the enemy is. And you need to know how to effectively fight against them. And we find not only a representative of the enemy, but what Christ has called us to do to fight. It is to bear witness to Christ's resurrection. But as soon as the word of God goes forth, as soon as there is good in the world and light in the world, as soon as God put image bearers on earth, where did Satan aim his guns? At the garden. As soon as you build something beautiful, there's the Grinch who wants to tear it all down. And I don't mean to belittle his power or his wickedness, but it is a bit of a metaphor that all the beauty and light and glory of this earth, Satan hates it all. And if you are a representative of that glory, and in particular, last week we looked at who these two prophets were, and I contend this, it is all of the prophetic message in those men who bear it in their bodies and in their mouths that the Messiah is coming. Abel was such a prophet, which is why Cain killed him. But even after Cain killed him, What did Jesus say to him when he confronted him? Yes, Jesus. It's Jesus in the Old Testament that is doing the interaction with the Old Testament saints and others. His blood still preaches. The blood of the martyrs, as Tertullian is given credit to saying, is the seed of the church. Now what that means isn't just you can't kill the church. It means the great prophetic message of the church is connected to Christ's death and resurrection. Because Christ is dead and Christ is risen, then we shall die and we shall be raised and the ministry of those who declare Christ's messianic kingship cannot be stopped except in verse 7, look at verse 7, when they finish their testimony. Who is in charge of that? Who gives to the prophet Room, message, opportunity. The saints of God will not be silenced until their time has come. And that time is not ordained by the beast, the political enemy of the church, but by Christ. Christ ordains and orchestrates the seasons. And that part of the ministry of the prophets, certainly in the Old Testament, has been one of, well, that's not really something you want to be called to do. If you want to live a peaceful life, don't be a prophet. The problem today is that many men, 
Go into pastoral ministry. You've heard it. Those who cannot do, teach. It's cynical, isn't it? But it also relates to the pastorate. Those who don't want a real job will often go to seminary. And a lot of lazy men are in seminaries. A lot of lazy men have been content with preaching once on Sunday for centuries. And especially now. And I wonder, what do you do? Against whom are you contending? In fact, anybody who goes to war in times of peace, they don't put the sword by the hearth and let it rust. What are they doing? They're going into their yard and they're practicing so that when the days of darkness come, they're trained. These prophets are sent out not into a world that says, come on, preacher, preach. Because that's oftentimes the way preachers think they will be received by the communities into which they go. And if they are not received in that way, then their ministries are not successful. Church growth is no indication of success. Otherwise, every prophet that was ever alive in the Old and in the New Testament, including Christ himself, failed in their earthly ministries. In fact, Christ was was incredibly adept at running people off. And part of that is because he talked mainly about two things, money and sex. Your heart and how your heart expresses its allegiance in terms of the things that you love, those things that are most fundamental to the lives of men. And the reason why these prophets are persecuted is because they are doing close, pointed application. When Peter preached in the book of Acts and he goes to the city of Jerusalem and he says in light of the unfolding plan of God's revelation, Jesus is the Messiah. He looked at everybody and he said, you crucified the Lord of glory. And there's people now in congregations that go, ooh, what's he? I don't know if I like the way he's talking to me. Can you imagine the pin drop moment? You crucified the Lord of glory. And there were many who heard and believed. Now those who heard and believed were of such a variety of people that it required the Holy Spirit at that time to instantly translate that language of Hebrew into a, or Greek into a multitude of languages. This is what we read about the tongues. This is not a spiritual language in the early part of the book of Acts. It's Spanish. It wasn't Spanish, but you know what I'm saying. It's French. It's Southern English, right? Which at times appears to be a totally different language from the Queen's English. They heard, and on that day, 3,000 were saved. But then there are those within that city who heard the same message, and at that moment, and even before, were plotting to kill the apostles. Why? Isn't Christianity good for the world? Yes. Does the world know what's good for it? No. Our rebellion against righteousness is insane. But it's our sin that drives us to this insanity. And so the beast, this political entity... That is not Rome here in particular, but it is Jerusalem. It is Jerusalem. 
It is the Old Testament people of God who have in their conduct and in their response to the ministry of the Messiah become, verse 8, spiritually as Sodom and Egypt. They had become completely inverted in their spiritual affections. And the icing on the cake was the crucifixion of the Messiah. What sealed it was the crucifixion of the Messiah. It revealed their hardness of heart. Not only did they put the prophets of the Old Testament at times to death, they killed Jesus Christ and then they killed his apostles. And here, these great prophets, these witnesses, those who come as Christ came, at the end of their testimony, the beast rises and with their power puts them to death. And then all within that city, that empire, have Christmas to celebrate. That's what they're doing. I'm not saying it's Christmas. I'm not... I'm not making fun of Christmas here. It's, it's a, it becomes a national holiday. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies. These are the dead bodies of the martyred prophets from tribes, tongues, and nations. And they will see them for three and a half days, a symbolic period of time here. And they will not allow their bodies to be put in the graves. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them. They will make merry and they will send gifts to one another. It's the dead prophet day. Merry dead prophet day. But how else can the world rejoice in their rebellion unless those who speak out against their rebellion are silenced? Do you know why Satan cannot for a moment tolerate the cheerful singing of the saints. Because he can't have anything that stands in the way of his wicked agenda. How does Satan operate? Through means. Through his children. Through those possessed not only by demons, but who are willing to silence the church for the sake of their Political agendas. Who is the Antichrist then? It is the theological enemy of the church. It's the Pope. It's any and all who elevate themselves above the office of Christ as Redeemer. And I don't mean just the Pope. There are a lot of little Popes. Sometimes you operate like a little Pope. When you in your theological liberalism, I'm not saying you, I'm saying you... Whoever's listening, up in the narrative of Scripture, deny the inerrancy of it, deny the incarnation, deny the virgin birth, deny those doctrinal principles that strike at the very heart of what makes a man new. Those who deny sin and salvation that were made in the image of God. These are theological liberals. And the church gets to fight both of these powers. Now, we don't fight it the way the world does. Just because the beast fights the way he does, does not mean that we enter into the fight in the same way. 
For how are the prophets making known to the nations? How are they witnesses to the glory of Christ? By preaching and by dying. There are times where it is only through martyrdom that Christ sees fit to bring the fullness of his gospel into the world, whether it is Ecuador or Eritrea. And we're living in a day and age, even in the West, and especially in the West, where there is a far more insidious, you may say, sophisticated political attack against the church. And the way in which the church right now often seeks to wage this fight is to say, we don't even believe there is a beast. The beast has our best interests at heart. No, he does not. And you must be wise and cunning as serpents, but innocent as doves, in the pursuit of the proclamation of the word of God, knowing this, that there are people out there right now who will celebrate your silencing. And silencing can come in a variety of ways. Deplatforming, as silly as social media is, is evidence of hearts that wish to silence the church. Do not be fooled. It isn't God's way of saying maybe you do spend too much time on YouTube. It's Satan's way of trying to conquer the message and silence it. And what should you do when that time comes? Speak up until you're dead. Get louder until in God's providence he doesn't give you a testimony or opportunity anymore. Now, enough of that perhaps. I'm getting a little too riled up. But what we need to see here as it relates to the beast's power and the power of the church and that of the witnesses is that death is on Christ's terms. Even here it is on Christ's terms. And that we live in a world where though the world hates us, God will grant to us opportunity to bear witness as long as he desires. But the witness of the saints is not only through their mouths, it's also in how they die. In fact, go back this fall. If you homeschool, do this with your children. And if you don't homeschool, still do it with your children. Because they're going to need supplemental education. Go back and study the English Reformation. And this is what I want you to look at. England was not ready for Puritan reform theology. They only became ready after Bloody Mary began to persecute the church. And a guy named Fox wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs. And in that book, he began to record all of the wretched acts that the church in England suffered at the hands of Bloody Mary. And you know what it did? It got people riled up. And they realized this is wrong. And the English Reformation grew out of a soil that had been nurtured that had been tilled up by persecution, by her efforts. And this is not the first and only time. But time and time and time again, the blood of the martyrs is used by Christ to till the soil that even while the world celebrates 
the death of goodness, of reason, of truth, of light, of the Messiah, Christ is preparing a fitting end for all who mark such a day. And so as it relates to these witnesses, we do need to see this. The world has no quarter for truth. And when I say the world, I don't mean the globe. I mean the sinful men who inhabit it. Second point, resurrection is testimony. Now, the reason why the world hates us is because they are a tormented people who are only further tormented by reminders of why they're tormented. When we go out into the world and we preach Christ and him crucified, we're not just preaching this, oh, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's only wonderful if the person who hears that is already being worked on by the Spirit. But when you go to someone who is openly hostile to the Word of God and you come with this all-shucks mentality, they're going to look at you and you're going to wonder where the right hook came from. And maybe you've witnessed this. I've witnessed this in my own ministry. In fact, when people ask me what I do for a living, I don't want to tell them. And it's not because I'm embarrassed. I like to be a bit cantankerous. But I know that it will shut the conversation down, especially if you're in a Starbucks, right? Especially if it's a barista, (laughs) right? You know the kind I'm talking about. Because there's something and they wear it in the, the clothes they wear in their hair that they have. They look as though they are searching for something and they have not found it. And they're angry at everybody because they're, they are at odds with the Holy Spirit. <coughs> what do you do? I'm a pastor. Here. And you've been in those situations. This is what HR boards are, right? They are breeding grounds for every position except Christianity to be tolerated in whatever organization you may be a part of. We live in a constant victim culture. And the only solution to victimhood is what? It is violence. In a world like ours, it is the victim... Conquering the victor. And our sense of justice, social justice, racial justice, has become at its heart not biblical, but, well, evolutionary and communist. In order to establish for yourself a name... You must destroy the ones who stand in the way. And these witnesses come into the world and what they say is this. Christ is your Lord. He's not a Lord. He's not your Lord only if you want him to be. He is the Lord. And the only right response is to bow your knee and worship him. But beasts are untamable. And that is what this is. And not just the rulers of that age. It isn't just Rome or Jerusalem. It is any nation and peoples and tongues who refuse to use their mouths to worship the true and living God. And when you go out into those people, 
and you proclaim Christ, it torments those who are tormented. And so what do they do? They kill him and they don't even give them a burial. This happened to many of the reformers. And in fact, many of the reformers that were buried, the Roman Catholic Church dug up their bones and burned them and threw them in the water as a sign of dishonor. And there have been many who have done far, far, far worse. Death stands at the center of testimony. But so does, look at verse 11, after three and a half days the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. It's the same commission that was given to John. Come on. Wouldn't that not be sweet to hear? After all the suffering and the lack of invitation from the world to come and teach, you hear Christ say, come to me. Come up here. Now, one of the things that we need to see as it relates to resurrection and testimony is the connection between death and resurrection as concepts, as acts, and the death and resurrection of Christ related to our death and resurrection. Now, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, David Chilton writes this. The attempt to destroy the witness seemed to be successful. Not only in silencing individual prophets, but in abolishing the testimony of the covenant itself. Yet the evil time is brief. Being limited to a mere three and a half days. Through the resurrection of Christ, the church and her testimony become unstoppable. In union with Christ and his ascension to glory, they went up to heaven and their enemies beheld them. The story of two witnesses is therefore the story of the witnessing church. What we are to see from the book of Revelation again in this interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet is how Christ conquers. And when we see death, we think what? We made a mistake, right? Do not live in such a way that you get removed from social media, which is a very metaphorical way of saying, do not testify in such a way that they put you to death. Don't misbehave. But the witnesses are not misbehaving, are they? They're just preaching. The simple gospel of Christ risen from the dead. And they're put to death for it. But Christ, even as he governs how long they will get to testify and the content of that testimony, he also holds their lives in his hands in such a way that though the testimony seem to be dead, they, like Christ, will be raised. Like the candles that people put on your cake and you blow it out and you're like, all right, I did it in one breath. And you're like, you know, 15, that's a big deal, right? I got all 50 candles. And then all of a sudden, here they come again. And here they come again. Satan may know how to strategize, but the problem that he has is whatever strategy he has come up with cannot stand in the face of this great power 
though you kill us, the testimony goes on. Because the testimony of a dead and raised Messiah is a testimony of a church that cannot fully stay dead. And throughout history, what we have seen in nations where men have come and persecuted the church is the eradication of that church for a time. And then, lo and behold, Mao Zedong dies. Deng Xiaoping dies. And even the man at the wheel right now cannot stop the rise of the church in China. Why? Because he's just a man. And even right now it seems that we are in the West going through a bit of a cycle where the beast has risen and he comes against the church. And there are many in the church who say, oh, wait, wait, wait a second. Let's see if we can appeal to this beast's sensibilities. And there are some in the church saying, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. Let's keep witnessing and do so with clarity and conviction. Because even though we may face persecution, it is not the beast who has the last laugh. One day Christ will, as we see in the book of Revelation, throw that beast into the pit. And he will be gone forever. God will vindicate Publicly, those who are humiliated publicly. You and I, saints of God, if we are faithful and endure, will inherit the world and the world will see us inherited. They will see the kingdom given to us, which is not a place of having pride before the world. No, it may mean we have to die publicly. I pray that I get buried <laughs> on my own terms. And my children can come and visit my grave as morbid as that may sound. But my ashes may be scattered to the, I don't know, can you see me floating down South Fork River? <laughs> if need be, that's what will happen, right? Because I know one day Christ will say, come on up. Watch as I make my enemies my footstool. And then there is this earthquake. It correlates to Christ's resurrection. Remember when Christ was raised? There was a great earthquake in Jerusalem and there were other dead people who rose from the dead. And even though Christ was raised and even though those who were dead in him were raised, there were those who still did not believe. There are still those whose greatest, most joyful thought is that the church be conquered. And here, because of this earthquake, due to the resurrection of the prophets, these witnesses, 7,000 people were killed. This is the inverse of what we see with Elijah. 7,000 were the remnants spared. God is showing that even though these prophets are raised in such a way as to, well, let's look, a tenth, verse 13, in the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Christ is giving to Jerusalem these birth pangs of warning and there were those who were afraid and gave glory to God in the same way Nebuchadnezzar did in the, in, in, early in his life. Such that when we read of Nebuchadnezzar, what's the question? Was he ever saved? Well, there were moments in Daniel's ministry where he said something and Nebuchadnezzar said, 
Glory be to God, but it was lip service. He was still a pagan king, and his heart was not changed. Even in the act of clear resurrection of dead human bodies, there will be those who see them, they will tremble for a time, and then they'll forget it. Right? Once it's out of the news cycle, (laughs) once it passes away from the consciousness of men, they will go back to their wicked lives. This is the great problem of Jerusalem. They had seen it. And even though they had seen it and heard it, they still did not believe. And so, to those of you who do suffer, remember this. Christ gives you the message. He allots you the time. And he holds your body as well as your soul in his hands. And in reward for your faithful service, what will he do? He will bring you to himself. To those who seek to silence the wisdom and the witness and the beauty of the gospel, know this. If you do not heed the witness, you will know only destruction. Revelation 11 applies to Jerusalem. But it is also a template for how God works with the nations. God will bring judgment upon those who silence the faithful witness of his word. The ministry of saints is to be seen by the world. world. It is to be heard by the world. But the only way to hear it and believe it is ultimately granted by the same one who gave the witnesses new life. And the attempt to silence the prophets of God results only in the furthering of his destruction upon you. You can't beat the king. He is the king. And for those who have his blessed knowledge, the knowledge of his death, burial, and resurrection, the the word of God that is stored and treasured in your heart, know this, that whatever happens, be faithful in the witness that whatever happens to you is portioned and measured out by God and whatever evil may befall you is part of the furthering of his kingdom and the expression of his glory throughout all the earth. And so, as John writes here, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. Christ shows us how he works. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God.